I don't know why, but I want to pray again. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the way that you um, constantly move. Lord, I pray that today you would um, help us to see you at work. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken us uh, to where you are and give us a desire and passion to come and, and join you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I, I love starting sermons off with light notes, and yet somehow today it feels a little out of place, but I'm, I'm going for it anyway. Um, I was thinking this week just about uh, how, how when a sports game ends, it means good things for one team and bad things for another. I was watching the, the Monday Night Football game this past week, because you know the Chiefs were playing, and uh, you know, it was a tight game. It ended up being a one-point game, and the bad guys, the Raiders, had the ball at, at the end of the game with an opportunity to win. And like I am, like my palms are sweaty, my heart's racing, you know, I'm like stoked to see who's going to win this game. And the end of the game, it's, it's all zeros. And like I've got my hands in the air, you know, on my couch because it matters to me so much. Uh, you know, I've got my hands in the air being quiet because Elise is asleep. And, and, uh, and I get up and like I, I sigh. <sighs> we won, you know. But then I think, about, I think about the other team and how, like, sad and dejected they are. Like, my moment of yes is their moment of oh. You know, and I don't think that can be seen anywhere any plainer than watching basketball because the whole game can turn in a second. With one shot, uh, one team can make the basket at the end of the game. The ball go through the net as time expires. Poof. The, and then what do you see? You see one team going bonkers bananas, and then the other team's just like, oh, I can't believe it. So the end, the end can mean wonderful news for one group of people and terrible news for others. The end means joy for some and sorrow for others. Today, as we look at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, we're going to see that John the Baptist is preaching the, the coming of the kingdom. Uh, his preaching is quite literally preparing the way for the Lord. Now, when it comes to bringing in his kingdom, it marks the end. Now, or at least the beginning of the end. The, end of, the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death. We know that when Christ returns, he will bring about the final end. But here we have the beginning of the end. So with the coming of his kingdom comes great joy for those who are citizens in the kingdom, but also it brings great trouble for those who are outside the kingdom. Because with the kingdom comes salvation for those who believe, but with the kingdom comes wrath on those who don't. So stated in sports terms, when the clock strikes zero, there will be winners and there will be losers. But good news, right? Good news, the end does not come without warning. Somebody sent to prepare the way of the Lord. So as we look at the, the ministry of John the Baptist, one that is where he comes to prepare the way of the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, what does that ministry look like? So as we dive into our passage today, that's what we're going to unpack. What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? 
Now, as we dive into our passage today, I want to note a few things that kind of kick off our passage coming from verses 1 and 2. As we look at verse 1 and 2, we need to be thinking about Luke's mission for the book of Luke. What was his purpose? His purpose was to strengthen the faith of his readers. He wanted his readers to be certain about the things that they had been taught. So what Luke does is he identifies at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, he identifies who's the, who's the Caesar at the time, who's the, the emperor of all the land. Then he also identifies, okay, who's the local Roman authority right there in the land where they are. Not just that, but who's the local Jewish authorities? And he mentions both civil and religious now, what this does is it places the events of the Gospel of Luke in real time. The story of Jesus is not some story that happens in a galaxy far away a long, long time ago. It's something that happened in a real place, in a real time. And he even gives us the physical location of this particular episode. We find out in verses 2 and 3 that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. And not just any wilderness, but the wilderness by the Jordan River. Now, if we think about John the Baptist, this one who was coming in the spirit of Elijah, we're told in other books, uh, this one who's, who's coming, um, what, what we would think that maybe he would be preaching in all the big synagogues, maybe at the temple in Jerusalem. But it's interesting that we find him in the wilderness, not by some prestigious river like the Tigris or the Euphrates or the Nile, but by a rather insignificant river like the Jordan. Now, so far in the book, we've seen Luke uh, tell us two different stories about two different babies. And he kind of helps us wonder, why, what might the, the future of these two babies hold? Now, we got a hint last week uh, of what Jesus' life might be like when Jesus says to Mary and Joseph, didn't you know I would be, uh, about my father, I'd be in my father's house? Now we see John's ministry come into fruition. God sent him, who was in his own right a miracle child, to prepare the way for an even bigger miracle child and the Savior of the world. But how will John the Baptist prepare the way? What will he do? Well, verse 3 tells us. Let's take a look at verse 3. It says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So the short answer to the question, how will John the Baptist prepare the way of the Lord, is that he'll preach repentance. How is he going to prepare the way of the Lord? He will preach repentance. But when we uh, take in the whole of the verse, I think it means a little bit more than that. So let's start by talking about the obvious here. Uh, what does the word repentance mean? Now, if, if you guys have grown up in church the way I have, and you've been around church a lot, I think a lot of us have heard that repentance is kind of like a marching term, and it means an about face. It means to turn around, to walk away from. It's to go 180 degrees in the other direction. But I think perhaps uh, a more appropriate and even uh, a simpler definition is a change of mind. What is repentance? The, the language behind the word is literally a change of mind. It is an altering of one's understanding. Now, I think most of us, if we were just to evaluate our own personal behavior and what we do, 
we would not do the things we do unless we could somehow justify them in our own minds. So we rationalize, we justify, we find a way to say that what I'm doing is okay. Even if it's something we know is not okay, we somehow justify in our brains how this is the exception, right? These are the things that we do. Now, I mentioned uh, football earlier, okay? Now, I have never had a moral conflict about watching football, okay? I don't think there's anything wrong with watching football. But if the Spirit changed my mind and I became convinced that it was immoral, then I would repent. It is a changing of the mind. I would now change the way I talk about it. I would say that watching football is a sin. And because I've had that change of mind, it's going to change my behavior. All right? My mind would change, my understanding would change, and it would change then how I act. Now, I like to say this, that repentance is taking God's side against our sin. Okay? Repentance is taking God's side against our sin. Now, here's why I say that. That means that we recognize that God is holy and God is just. God is holy and God is just. And we confess that he is the Lord of our lives, so that means he is the authority in our lives. And he has the right to say what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not. So because we acknowledge him as Lord and authority in our life, then we take his stance against our sin. He says those things in our life that are sin or sin, and so we say they are, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to walk away from those things because our minds have been changed about them. Our understanding has been altered about them. So now we identify them as sin, and through the power of the Spirit, we begin to walk away. Uh, according to the commentator James Edwards, he says this, repentance combines both rational decision and willful act as opposed to a motive feeling alone. I like that, okay? In other words, repentance isn't just feeling bad about our behavior. It's not just an emotional state of mind. Repentance isn't merely feeling bad. There is a willful act that accompanies a rational decision. Your mind has been changed, and now it changes the way we act and what we do. There is a willful act to change based on a new rational decision. Our actions move toward our new convictions. Our actions move toward our new convictions. So John is preparing the way of the Lord by preaching a change of mind in regard to sin. Now, how do we know he's talking particularly about a change of mind in regard to sin? Well, because Luke explains that John preaches repentance for what? For what purpose? For forgiveness of sin. The, the direct context of repentance in this passage is repentance for forgiveness of sin. So within this change of mind is an apology. There is there's regret. There is grief over past behavior. 
John isn't just trying to convince people that they need to change their mind about their behavior. By preaching forgiveness, he is preaching about a restored relationship. It's, it's one thing, right, if, if in your marriage or with your parents or even with your friends, if you do something that uh, hurts your friend's feelings, right, uh, and you apologize for it because you see they feel bad, and so you feel bad because they feel bad because we're not robots and we have empathy, right? So we feel bad because they feel bad, and so we apologize for the way we made them feel. But if we don't, like, seek to change that behavior, have we repaired the relationship? There is an apology for what we've done to hurt the relationship, and then there is an effort to change the way we behave in order to restore the relationship. So what we see here is he's saying, hey, not just, not just a change of behavior, because that's the other side of the equation, right? We can change within our marriage relationship if, if our spouse says to us, I wish you would just do the dishes every night. That would make my life so much easier. We can do that with a begrudging heart and the relationship still not be restored. It is both an action and a heart relationship here. So when he says come in for the, the, he's preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin, there is a relationship component that he's after. It's a change of mind, a grief over past behavior in order to move us toward forgiveness and reconciliation back to him so that the relationship is restored. And now this brings us to baptism. So there's three components there. We see repentance, we see forgiveness, but he's also baptizing. What is this baptism that John the Baptist is all about, where we get our name, Baptist? Where, where, where does this all come from? Now, the New Testament doesn't, New Testament baptism doesn't really exist in the Old Testament the way we do it today. Now, the Old Testament has similar rituals, but it's not quite the same. Within baptism, there are, however, most definitely connections back to the earliest days of God's people becoming his people. So, all right, we've talked about repentance. We've talked about forgiveness. Let's talk about baptism. Where does this idea of baptism come from? Well, it comes through several places in the Old Testament, but one in particular comes from Exodus 19. And I think Exodus 19 helps us get a grasp around what the, this preaching of John is about. So as we think about the setting of Exodus 19, we need to remember a few things. So God's people, his, the descendants of Abraham, they increased in number. They fled to Egypt uh, when Joseph was uh, in power as one of the lesser princes, if you will, in, in Egypt. And they, they multiplied. And one of the pharaohs came along and enslaved his people. And at the beginning of Exodus, we see that God remembers his covenant with his people and he begins to move to pull them out of slavery in Egypt. And he sends Moses. And so Moses comes and he uh, talks to Pharaoh. God sends the ten plagues. And they're released. They're released from captivity in Egypt. Now, where we come in our story in Exodus 19, the people had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They had eaten manna that had fallen from heaven. They had drank from uh, water sources that God has provided miraculously. They had seen their first victories in combat. So by the time we get to uh, Exodus 19, they are free. They are free and living under God's protection. 
So as we get there to, to Exodus 19, God was calling Moses up to the mountain where he would receive the law, but God was going to prepare his new people first. So I've got some readings here in Exodus 19 we're going to do. We're going to jump around for time's sake. But I want you to see how God was at work preparing his people to receive the law. Starting in Exodus 19, 2b through 6. It says, There, encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. So what's he doing? He's telling them right now. He's setting them apart to be his treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people Israel. So that's what God tells Moses to tell the people. Let's skip down a little bit. When Moses told the words of the when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, "Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people." Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Now, what uh, Exodus 19 does here is it links washing, washing, and purification. That's the same idea as consecration. Washing and purification to being God's people. At the same time, the people are about to receive the law. There's this sense here that washing is a sign of being ready to receive a word from the Lord. So there's a washing of their clothes. There's a purification that happens, this consecration. They are being prepared to receive from the Lord. Now, no matter how you look at it, washing here is a sign of dedication to the Lord. Now, back in Luke 3, after Luke introduces John the Baptist's ministry as proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, Luke quotes from Isaiah as the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. So let's let's look here at the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. What does it say uh, in our passage? It says that he's come to make uh, every path straight. It says in, in, uh, in our passage there that every uh, valley will be, fi- be filled, every mountain will be leveled, and every crooked corner will be straightened. So what, what's his ministry? As he comes to prepare the way of the Lord by baptizing, by, by baptizing um, uh, through repentance and forgiveness of sin, John is coming to make uh, the path of the Lord straight. And he does this, and when he does this, when this message comes, it's going to fill every valley, level every hill and mountain, and every crooked path will be made straight. Again, through baptism, repentance, and forgiveness of sin. So John will prepare the people 
for the Lord in a similar way that God called Moses to prepare the nation of Israel to receive the law. Now let's, let's take a look at our passage here in uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, and see how John's ministry looks, I don't know, kind of like an Old Testament prophet. So I think it's fitting here. He's called uh, a prophet uh, in the likeness of Elijah. I, I kind of see him as Jonah as well, and, and you'll see why I say that here in a second. But this is when we see John actually preach. What is it that John says? How does he confront the people? All right, so uh, here's his message. He's, he's making the, the path of the Lord straight by saying this. He said Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like, does that preach well in today's culture? I'm just imagining uh, some, some big successful pastor pointing his finger at everybody, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You know, like, that's going to go over real well in today's day and age, right? So this is, this is the ministry that's going to lay flat the mountains and fill the valleys and make straight the path. He says in verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for, our tell, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I said that this passage kind of reminds me of Jonah uh, here because I think that there's this part of John that's kind of like annoyed that people are coming to repentance. Like, okay, so remember how we started this out, that, there's, that when, the, when the king comes, when the end comes, there's winners and there's losers, that there's joy for those who saved, but there's wrath for those who are not. And Jonah really wanted the city of Nineveh to be destroyed. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to have God's grace. He wanted judgment. There almost seems to be this little hint here of John the Baptist, like, really? We know from the other passages that, uh, uh, in Matthew that the, the brood of vipers here is specifically directed at the religious leaders. So he's, he's specifically got some people in mind that he's like, man, who warned you to come out here? Who warned you to hear this message that you need to repent? But what I also love about the ministry of John is he doesn't turn anybody away. They still have the opportunity to repent, even though maybe he's a little chippy. And he, he's like, man, you know, uh, who, who warned you that you should come out here, right? Now, there's no indication that he ever denied anyone repentance, but this, he just seems uh, annoyed, Okay, so Matthew's gospel lets us know, like I said a minute ago, that these, uh, that these words were meant particular for the teachers. But Luke keeps the, the, the viper comment pretty broad. Now, now, why is that? Now, whether it's to the people in general or whether it's to the religious leaders in particular, think about what a viper is. A viper is a venomous snake that has poison in their mouths. So as he calls them vipers, there seems to be undertones in this insult of, of there being lies in their mouths. Lies in their mouths. Now, either these people are false teachers and they're proclaiming things that are false, and that's the lie and poison that's in their mouth, or they say things that their actions don't back up. They profess things that aren't true in the way they behave. Maybe it's both, right? Right? Maybe he means it generally, that, that what comes out of your mouth doesn't match, 
Or maybe he means it specifically about uh, the religious leaders, or maybe he means all of the above. Either way, John's charge to them is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says to the people, you cannot count on your Jewish heritage as a means of being God's people. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're God's people. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. Because God can rise up children of Abraham from these stones. That's a pretty stark reality check. So he says being God's people isn't only about what you say. Being uh, God's people isn't about who your daddy is. Being God's people is about faith, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. And and John is, is not messing around here. There's no mincing words in how he describes this. He says the axe is ready. Any tree that does not bear fruit, the, bear the fruit of repentance, is going to get cut down and thrown into the fire. What does this mean? It means meaningful repentance is not just about words. The heart and our actions need to match. Just a couple chapters later in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says something very interesting that I think fits right along with what John is teaching here. Jesus says this in Luke 6, verses 46 through 49. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Just put a pin in that. What does Lord mean? Uh, Something Jenny Redding, our old children's minister, used to talk about when we would uh, introduce, you know, Taking a, having a saving faith to kids is we would say to those kids, you want Jesus to be the boss of your life. You want Jesus to be the boss of your life. What's your boss get to do? Your boss gets to tell you what to do. And if he doesn't get to tell you what to do, then is your boss your boss? So Jesus says here in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house, that house and could, and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the, and the ruin of that house was great. Church, if, if, uh, if we read this passage and think we're saved by works, then I think we miss the whole of, of the New Testament, okay? It, it's not saying here that we're saved by what we do. But what it is saying here is that what we do matters. What we do matters. We call him Lord, and if we call him Lord, then we obey. On Wednesday night, we've been going through 1 Timothy chapter 3, And we've been going through that passage for like three weeks now. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the qualifications of what it means to be an elder and a deacon. And what that passage does for us is it unpacks the fact that it isn't simply about what we profess. Our character matters. What we do matters. There are qualifications for being an elder or a deacon, and those are rooted in character. 
They're rooted in the things that we do. Why? Because if we profess him as Lord and master in our life and we are submitting ourselves under him, then the Holy Spirit that we submit ourselves under should come out in our lives. It should change what we do. As we change our minds, as our minds are changed and we take God's side against our sin, it should change our behavior. Our character should be transformed. So are we saved by what we do? The answer to that question is unequivocally no. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. However, our faith in Jesus Christ should absolutely change what we do. It should absolutely change what we do. Jesus says, if you call me Lord, you should do what I say. If you don't, then you're a house that is ready to be come crashing down. Have you really called me Lord? John would say it this way, then you're a tree that doesn't bear fruit. And the axe is ready. The clock is about to strike zero. There's about to be some winners and some losers. There's about to be those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. Those who are under salvation and those who are under the wrath of God. And the axe is ready. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist says. Repent, be baptized, and seek forgiveness from the Lord. And this is how the land is made level for the coming of Jesus. And when the people heard this, they're moved. They're moved. They realized something. The axe is ready. Is my life matching what I say? If I have come here for baptism of repentance, then am I really walking in a changed mind? Is this merely lip service? And listen to how the crowd responds. Luke uh, records this for us in verses 10 through 14. And the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? He didn't say, what shall we say? The crowds didn't say, what shall we feel? The crowd said, what shall we Say it with me. Do. What shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Right? What shall we do? And he gives them a task a task that demonstrates a change of mind and repentance. He says, collect no more than you are authorized to. He didn't say quit your job. Interesting, huh? He says, do your job appropriately. Do your job as to honor the Lord. Then we go on to the next group. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, again, what what they ask, what shall we do? Do, and he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. All right, this passage gives us three answers to the question, what shall we do? It's three ways that we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the thing that I want you to see is we have a heart and a mind change and then we have tangible action steps. There are things we should do, okay? It's it's the heart and the mind put into practice. To the crowd, he says, share what you have. 
to the tax collector, he says, uh, don't charge more taxes than you should. And to the soldiers, he says, don't use your power and authority to extort money from people. So what is the fruit of repentance? Let's look at this list in reverse order, starting with the soldiers. All right, the last group here, uh, he says to them, John says, don't abuse your power and authority. So just because people will let you do something, something that's wrong, doesn't mean you should. Just because people will let you do something doesn't mean you should. Just because you have the authority and the power to take what you want doesn't mean you should. The fruit of repentance in this case is keeping your power and authority under self-control. Keeping your power and authority under self-control. Second, we see that John tells the tax collectors not to cheat people out of extra money. What's the sign of repentance here? This is quit lying and quit cheating and stealing. Quit lying and cheating and stealing. John says the fruit of repentance isn't merely saying, I'm sorry I took all your money. It's to say, I'm not taking any more. And in the case of Zacchaeus, it's to give it back. That's pretty pretty big. John says you have to quit using your job as an opportunity to steal from people. Now, to the crowd, he gives a far more general way to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To the crowd, he says, be generous. Give with an open hand. Be ready to give when someone asks. John conveys a sense of understanding that to be forgiven means that we have received something that we don't deserve. To be forgiven is to receive mercy and to receive grace. So part of what it means to bear fruit in keeping with repentance is to be a people of mercy and grace. We have received compassion. We should show compassion. I would go as far as to say that all three of these situations that are mentioned here are extensions of treating people with the kindness and love that God has shown us. What does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? It means acting like the Lord that we claim to follow. Think of all that he's done for us. Think of all the blessings that he's given us. Think of everything he's done for us that we don't deserve, despite how we've treated him, despite the fact that we are a brood of vipers. He still offers repentance and forgiveness of sin. Just think about what God did for his people uh, as they were coming out of Egypt back in Exodus. What did he do? While they were in the wilderness, he fed them. He gave them water. He kept their clothes from wearing out. He defended them from their enemies. I, I see God moving toward his people with compassion. So the fruit of repentance is turning from selfish action and following the selfless example of our king. When the king comes, we need to be ready we need to be ready to follow him. 
And the way that John prepared the people, the way he helped them be ready, was to lead them to repentance. To lead them to true repentance from the heart that is a change in action. One commentator that I read this week said that if we look at repentance as the way that John prepared the people for the coming of the Lord, then John was calling for repentance on a tectonic scale. That's the phrase he used. Repentance on a tectonic scale. Now, why might he say that? Because this repentance is preparing the way of the Lord. What kind of repentance? The kind of repentance that knocks down mountains. The kind of uh, repentance that raises valleys. The kind of repentance that makes the crooked straight. This is potentially, potentially repentance on a tectonic scale. Then we get this example here of, of a tax collector and a soldier. And I want you to think about a tax collector and how radical it was for John to tell the tax collector not to collect more than he was authorized to. The tax collectors had such a reputation for being cheaters and scoundrels and, and uh, Roman sympathizers that they were authorized by the Jewish rabbis, right? The people, the common people, were authorized by the Jewish rabbis to lie to tax collectors. Right? You didn't even have to treat them like a normal person. You just got to treat them like they're a second-class citizen. You don't even have to tell them the truth. That's how much of swindlers these people were known as. And what he's saying is, don't act that way anymore. This, this part of you that's become your identity, the way you've enriched yourself, the way you've lined your own pockets and made yourself comfortable, we're talking about tectonic shift here, all right? So when we talk about tectonics, we're talking about the giant plates of the earth moving around, huge scale. This person has to completely change the way they live to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For the soldier, they have an opportunity to to make a little extra money through maybe uh, uh, protection schemes, right? Uh, hey, I'll watch your back if you just pay me a little extra. And if you don't pay me a little extra, maybe you need to get somebody to protect you from me, right? That, that kind of thing. Extorting people with money, using their power and authority to take advantage of people. This is how they made a little extra money. This was their job. These are professional soldiers. You know, here in Missouri, everybody's got a gun. Back then, everybody didn't have a sword, Okay, so they needed somebody to protect them, and they didn't have a way to defend themselves. These are trained soldiers. He says, hey, don't use that for your own advantage. Don't press these people. Do you see the, the huge shift? Now, this is what he's saying we need to do to be prepared to hear from the Lord. When we think about uh, the people of Israel uh, ready to receive the law, he says, consecrate yourselves, purify yourselves, be ready to receive. I think so many of us want to receive a word from the Lord. We want to hear from him. We want to obey him. We want to follow him. We want to go where the king goes. But we've put up obstacles in our lives that keep us from being ready to receive what the Lord has to teach us, to tell us, to show us, and we refuse to repent of certain things in our lives. The, the, the path of following Jesus is, yes, initial repentance as we come to salvation. But following Jesus isn't just about repenting once. It's about repenting over and over again as he continues to refine us and show us more and more of what's going on in our lives. He says, hey, he's, he, the, the, this is about restoring relationship, right? We've got baptism, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
It's about putting a relationship back together so that we can know him, talk to him, hear from him. And our sin often gets in the way of that. There's these things that we love more, these things that we love more than we love hearing from him. And so it's almost like these sins are are cotton that we shove in our ears that almost mute us. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about uh, the false teachers of the law having a seared conscience. They've seared their conscience against uh, what God has to say. And so this repentance here is is saying, I want to hear from the Lord. I want my, my conscience to be fresh, new skin, if you will, so that I can feel and hear from him again so that our relationship with him can be restored. So Jesus is about to come on the scene. And John says, if you want to be ready, it's time to repent. If we want to be ready to continue to hear from the Lord, then we need to be a people that lives in repentance. But John also said, who warned you? Who warned you of the coming judgment? And here they are out in the wilderness, and John basically says, if you haven't been warned, let me warn you. So look at Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. It says, as the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now look at verse 17. So we have the king is coming. The clock is about to strike double zero. It is the beginning of the end. When Jesus comes, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We don't like to talk about this part. We don't like to talk about this part, but the coming of the end means judgment. When Jesus comes to save, when he comes to reconcile his people to himself, The clock strikes zero. And there are going to be those who are in salvation, and there are going to be those who are under the wrath of God. He has come with his winnowing fork in hand that he might clear the threshing floor, that he might bring the wheat, his kingdom, into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's heavy. So what does John do? Or so what does God do? God sends John in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Repentance is for believers, and repentance is an opportunity for unbelievers as well. He's he's calling. He says, all right, the king is coming. Do you believe? Are Are you ready to step away from the old life and walk forward with Jesus as your Lord? Are you ready to make the paths straight in your heart for the Lord? Now, what I love, what I love is that we don't do this alone. That God has sent his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit shows us where our rough patches are. Man, anybody ever been blind to some sin in your life before you had no clue? 
thank God for his Holy Spirit convicting us and showing us where those things are. I'll tell you, before I knew Christ, I, I needed the Spirit to point me to the Lord. So as we uh, bring our, our, our time of teaching to a close and we think about John's message, here's my challenge to you guys. What, what do you have, you who are believers, what do you have to repent of? Is there anything in your life that you know is an obstacle that's keeping you from growing in your faith in the Lord? Or if you're here today and you've never set your faith in the Lord and you think, hey, what, what must I do to be saved? Well, John, John's told us, essentially repent and believe. We would love to talk with you more about what it is to set those things aside and follow Jesus. I know I'll be down here to talk to you. Any of your uh, believing brothers and sisters or people sitting next to you here in, in church would love to talk with you. However God is moving, this is our time to respond to him. If we want to receive uh, uh, a deeper relationship with him, what are the obstacles in our lives that are keeping us from knowing him? Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you do. Lord, we, we thank you that you want to know us. Lord, we thank you that you knock down our walls. Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would speak to each heart. Convict us of our sin. Open our eyes to see where, where we're like the tax collector, where we're like the soldier, where we're like those in the crowd. What is the thing that we need to hear from you that we need to walk away from, that we need to do? Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have, have called us to yourself and that you've sent your spirit to convict us of sin. Help us walk forward in obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen.